were to go around the room and ask, all of us would almost certainly affirm God could do anything. This is one of the great and comforting truths from God's Word. The danger, though, I think, can be in we affirm it, but then we live as though God were not all-powerful. And I think this is easy enough to happen with anything in our lives. It's, it's far easier to affirm something to be true than it is to live as though something are true. And when we affirm God is all-powerful and God can do all things, but we kind of get away from that in our lives, it will be noticed in sort of sort of anemic prayer lives. We don't pray much because God doesn't do much. Um, we are fearful and hesitant in our obedience because what if God doesn't come through and keep his end of the bargain? Right? And so those sort of things can begin to creep into our life. And 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 they creep in and, and the reason they creep in is well they, they creep in because we don't really I mean we believe up here but it hasn't sunk into here. God can do all things. And one of the reasons it creeps in and we can be okay with it is it's not like we go off and live sinful lives, right? We just, and we still pray and we still come to church and we still obey, but in the things that could be risky in our obedience, we back off of a little bit. In our prayer being just fervent and passionate and constant, we we back off of that. And so it's easy to, to come up with all of these reasons why that sort of life is okay. Now, personally, I don't want to live that way. I want to believe that I have a big God and I want to live like I have a big God. I want my faith in Jesus to motivate every aspect of my life, every day of my life. That's one reason we've been doing the study in Hebrews chapter 11. Right? A, a life of faith, this dynamic living faith we see in Hebrews 11 is probably the key to living faithfully for Jesus in this life and, and finishing well. Right? So that we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, by finishing well, I don't mean just finishing morally. That's a part of it, to be sure. To, to be moral as we go through our life. But to live well, to finish well is more than that to to live well is to live a life filled with hope because of who our God is and not despair over how big the struggles of life are uh, to, to to live well is to live life as an adventure because we are serving Jesus rather than as an ordeal because things here are, are not the way we think they ought to be. A life lived well is a life lived with purpose, eternal purpose, eternal significance, not just drifting through life or, or not just merely existing, but knowing that what I do, I do for the God of heaven. A life well lived is a life where God is glorified through every aspect of our life. A life well lived is a life where unbelievers ask us, why do you live the way that you live. But a, a life that from the outside looking in doesn't make a lot of sense to the unbeliever. Makes them kind of want what we have. And the key to a life like that is a living faith. 
And, and again, this is how I want to live. I want to be sure my life matters beyond here and now. I want to be sure I'm investing my life in things of eternal significance and not wasting my time and my life merely living for myself. I want to have a dynamic and a living faith. And, and as we've seen in our past studies in Hebrews 11, a massive part of this is, is just believing God is who He says He is. It is believing God can do what God says He can do and that He will do the things He says He will do. So we must, we must be convinced in the power of God. And when we are convinced in the power of God, there, is a, there are particular ways we will live. And we'll see that tonight. So open your Bible. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 22 is what we're going to look at. It should be page 927 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11 and 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son. It was he to whom it was said, Through Isaac your descendant shall be named. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type by faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Title of the message tonight is Faith in the Power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy and wonderful. Guide us tonight. Open our hearts to your word. Expand our minds to your greatness and your power. Help us, Father. Again, we would all affirm you can do all things, but let that sink from beyond our heads down into our hearts so that our lives, our lives of faith, our lives reflect the greatness of the God we worship. Our lives reflect the greatness of the Savior who died. Uh, fill us tonight with your Spirit. Move in our hearts. Change us so we are who you want us to be. Uh, and we can, and we will do what you want us to do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the, the key phrase in this section is what we find in verse 19. He considered God is able. Everything those mentioned in this particular passage did, they did because they believed God was able. Abraham believed God was able, so he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac believed God was able, so he blessed Jacob and Esau about things to come. Joseph believed God was able, so he was faithful to the end of his life and his service to God and even mentioned what God would do. In the days to come. And so our, our, our key thought from this is simply. God is able. God is able. Now like those in this passage. If we truly believe God is able. We will live in certain ways. And we will do certain things. The confidence God is able. Influences our life. So God is able. So we make. Any sacrifice. So verse 17 and 18 and 19 is about the story of 
Abraham offering up Isaac. This story is from Genesis chapter 22. We're not going to look there. I'll just kind of quickly review the story. Uh, Abraham, from the appearance of it, is like at night in bed. And God comes to him and tells him he must take his son, his only son Isaac, the son whom he loves, the one, as it says here, is the son of promise, and go to a mountain God would show him and then offer him up. Now, all in all, that's a big thing, I think. I've always thought that's a big ask. That's a huge thing God is calling on him to do. And yet Abraham's faith is one of the, once again where we see that it's pretty incredible. Because verse 3 of the chapter tells us Abraham rises the next morning and gathers the stuff and heads out. I mean, there's not even any hesitation. He doesn't wait. He doesn't try to haggle with God that we see. God talks to him in the night. He wakes up the next morning. He gathers some servants to help carry the stuff. He gets the wood. He gets Isaac. He gets the knife. He gets the fire. And and they head out. They they travel for three days. They see the mount where God has told him to go. And, and all throughout this, we're seeing Abraham's faith. But, but here when they get to the mountain and they're getting ready to go up, we see Abraham's faith in God going to do something. Because Abraham tells the servants, y'all stay here. Me and the boy, we're going to go up the mountain and worship God. We're going to offer something to the Lord. And then we're coming back. I mean, Abraham, even though God told him to go and offer his son, he, he thought something was going to happen and he was going to come back with his son. On the walk up, his son looks around and they've made lots of sacrifices. And he recognizes something's not as it should be. There's wood for the fire. There's fire for the fire. There's a knife for the sacrifice. But hey, Dad. Where's the ram? Where's the animal? To which Abraham replies, God will provide. Of course, you know the story. He, they go up to the top of the mountain. They lay out the altar. He binds up Isaac. He lays him up there. He raises his arm and an angel cries out from heaven, telling him to do the child no harm. He sees, God sees Abraham, fears the Lord, and has withheld nothing from him. So there's a ram trapped in the thicket. They offer that, they, they come down, and they go on with their life. As I said, all in all, I think this is a pretty big ask by God. And yet Abraham does not hesitate to make it. Why? He believed God was able. Specifically, it says in in verse 19, God was able to raise people from the dead. Now, if you really think about it, Abraham's response to God and his faith in God in this instance is amazing. Right Now, beyond the fact that what God asks, he does. We, we have the completed word of God. We know God does not command ever human sacrifices. Especially child sacrifices. This is especially an abominable thing in the eyes of God. And one of the reasons God brought judgment on the Canaanites because they offered up their own children to Molech. So God would never command that. In fact, God makes point later in later times to say, I, I never made a command like that. It would never even enter my mind to do that because Israel begins to copy the customs of the land and they offer their children to Molech. 
And God is horrified and angered by the slaughter of the innocent children. And he brings judgment on even Israel for that. Secondly, we have the completed word of God, so we know God indeed can raise the dead. God indeed does raise the dead. Abraham did not have this sort of knowledge about who God was, what God was like, the power God had. Now, don't get me wrong. Abraham knew God and was called a friend of God, after all. But he didn't have the breadth of knowledge you and I have through God's word. Despite this, Abraham trusted God. Abraham believed God was able. And so he made the sort of sacrifice God called on him to make. So the question for us is, what about us? Do we believe God is able and so we'll make any sacrifice God would ask of us? Now, obviously, we aren't going to be asked to offer our kids and we aren't going to be asked to make any Old Testament type sacrifices to atone for our sin. But does that mean there aren't sacrifices disciples of Jesus in our day might be called on to make? Of course, it doesn't mean that. We will at times be called upon to make sacrifices. And our sacrifice, our willingness to make the sacrifice will often depend on whether or not we believe God is able. Let me show you an example of this. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Verse 17 is where we'll be. It's page 771 if you have a pew Bible. It's a familiar story. Mark 10 and 17. It says, as as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him, or Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him. Jesus loved him, it says in in other translations. So here's the story that we're familiar with. This guy runs up, what do I need to do that I can have eternal life? So Jesus tells him, one, you, you keep the commandments. But notice that the commandments Jesus gives are the commandments dealing with our relationship to other people. He doesn't talk about... No one before God, no idols, do not covet, things like that. He doesn't deal with the guy's relationship with God, just his relationship to other people. The guy says, I've kept all of those from my youth. Which, again, there's no no indication he was lying. Probably he was raised in a solid Jewish home. I don't think he's saying he's kept them perfectly. I think what he's saying is, mom and dad raised me right, is essentially what he was saying. He was raised in Sunday school. He was raised in church. He was raised to do it. He had been doing it. So Jesus loved him, and then he spoke to him. And he said, here's the one thing you like. And here's here's the sacrifice Jesus calls on him to make. Go and sell all you possess. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. 
So there's the sacrifice. Take everything you have and sell it. Give all of it to the poor. You you keep nothing. You come follow me and I will ensure you get treasure in heaven. And I think the implication is that what I will give you will be better than what you are getting rid of. What you are giving up. So the question before the rich young ruler is this. Does he believe God is able? Does he believe if he gets rid of everything he has, Jesus can give him something better? Well, but he was deeply dismayed by these words. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He did not believe Jesus was able. Again, the question, though, comes back to us. Do we? Do we believe Jesus is able? If we make the sacrifice of whatever Jesus calls on us to make, do we believe He can give us something equal or greater value to what we give up? Well, look at what Jesus goes on to say. He looks around, says to His disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they trust in their riches. His disciples were amazed at His words. But Jesus responded again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they looked at him and they were more astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? Now, let me stay here. One thing about this, and this is not a major point, but it's an important point. When Jesus talks about a, a camel going through the eye of a needle, one of the, the myths of biblical interpretation that has been passed down through the years is the the myth of the needle gate in the walls of Jerusalem. And the story goes like this. When the walls, when the gates were shut at night, there was a tiny little wall, tiny little open gate in the wall at Jerusalem. And so what would happen is travelers would come to Jerusalem at night and they would have their camel who could not get through this gate and they would have to unpack it and Pass the stuff through. And then they would have to make the camel get down on its hands and its knees and crawl through like this. And and, and it was not impossible, but it was difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Therefore, it was difficult for rich people to be saved. Great story. Only problem is it's not true. The needle's eye gate didn't exist till hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is what it literally says. You take a needle and a camel, and it's pretty clear the camel can't get through there. That's why the disciples say, well, who can be saved? And look at the answer. With people, it's impossible, but not with God. Now, again, this is an important part because... If we go to the needle eye gate, it wasn't impossible with people, was it? It was just difficult. But that's not the point. The point of salvation is never that it's difficult for humans to get saved. The point of salvation is with people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation is only found in God, not in our efforts or our work. This is always the point. Okay, this leads up to the point about sacrifice. Peter began to say to him, we have left everything and have followed you. Is this an accurate statement? Absolutely it is. 
They walked away from jobs. They walked away from family. They walked away from from everything. So they could go and they could follow Jesus. And his point is, what what do we get out of it? We, We have made a sacrifice. I left my successful fishing business. Matthew left the receipt of custom. He wasn't going back. James and John left the fishing business. Everybody here, Lord, we all sacrificed and left something to be here with you in this moment. And here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, so Jesus says if whatever we, essentially it's the old statement, you can't outgive God. We've all heard that before. That no matter what we give up for the sake of Christ and the kingdom, we never come up short. Jesus gives us more in return than we ever would have had without Him. Do we believe that? Do we believe God is able to give us more, to keep this promise and give us more than we would have had on our own if we had not made the sacrifice? And if we say yes then in what ways does our lives show we believe it? What sacrifices are we making for Jesus and the kingdom of God because that demonstrate we believe He is able to keep this promise and others? If we believe God is able, we will make any sacrifice that is asked of us. Go ahead and turn back to to Hebrews 11. God is able. And so we make any and every sacrifice. Second, God is able. And so we speak words of faith. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, in both of these stories, their faith, they believed God was able, and so they blessed someone. They blessed children, or in, in Jacob's case, he blessed his grandchildren. Now, the idea of blessing in the Bible is not just a routine they would go through, some sort of a cliche they would say. Jewish people believed in the power of the spoken blessing. They believed they could speak God's blessings upon others. Now, this believing that that they did something by speaking this blessing is an important part of the blessing to understand. When they spoke the blessings over people, they truly expected God would do something in response to the words they said. It wasn't like if we would say, God bless you if someone sneezes. For the most part, and maybe you're different, maybe I'm just projecting upon you, but for the most part, I don't believe we really expect anything to happen in response to that. I typically don't. It's a habit. My mama taught me to say, God bless you, when someone sneezes, and so I do. 
Um, but I don't put much thought into what I expect might happen. Typically, nothing. Well, this isn't the way it was when they blessed. When Jewish people blessed someone in the name of God, they believed God could and God would do something to tangibly bless that person. Now, this belief wasn't some sort of Jewish mythology. It was rooted in God's Word. Right? So, in the book of Numbers, the Lord speaks to Moses, says, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, In this way you shall bless the sons of Israel. So part of the job of the, the priests, the descendants of Aaron, was to, to lead the worship of the people. And a part of their function as the priest was to speak a blessing over the people. What was the blessing? Well, it may be familiar. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, this is familiar. But again, this wasn't just a snazzy statement. right? That's a cool sounding thing. Man, that's great. But it was more than that. Because the very next verse goes on to say this. So they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. So this blessing that the, the priests, the descendants of Aaron would pronounce or speak over the people at the end of all of their times together, they weren't just words. They were invoking the name of Yahweh and, and calling upon Him and asking Him to do something to the people believing God would, in fact, do those things. Those in the Aaron's the Aaronic priesthood believed God was able to bless. And so they spoke this blessing over people. These in our text believed God had the power to bless, that God was able to bless. And so they spoke blessings over these people. Do we believe God is able? And so do we speak blessings over people? Now, probably what we might say is, well, this was... Old Testament. We live in New Testament times. And, and I'm glad that's brought up because I, I want to introduce you to New Testament blessings. And we don't have time to look at all of them because almost every book of the New Testament has a blessing the author speaks over the readers. Um, and so here are just a couple that some are familiar. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your souls prosper. Even the book of Hebrews has one. Look at Hebrews 13 and 20 and 21. I love this as one of my favorites. Um, now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice in each of these blessings there is an invoking of the name of God and a something that God will do to bless they would, be, they would prosper and be in health. The grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, abound with hope. And 
then in Hebrews that they would be equipped through the Spirit to do every good thing according to His will. This is New Testament blessings. They believed. God was able to bless in the ways they said. And so they spoke those blessings over their hearers, over their, their readers. Do we believe God is able to bless people in the ways we say and then speak blessings over them? And a room full of free will Baptists, I'm going to guess the answer is no. No, we do not do this well. This is probably not the strongest area of our lives as disciples of Jesus. In fact, there may be some listening who are like, bro, you sound like you've been watching too much YouTube and you're going into the land of the crazies. But the question is, is it really going off kilter or is it something we're missing out on in our lives? My father-in-law used to say that free will Baptists were reactionary. What he meant was this. There would be a group who would go to an extreme. And we would say, I don't want to be them. And so what we would do then is we would pull way, way over to the opposite extreme. And we were essentially, we were just as extreme as they were, but just in the opposite area. Many times, while we were pulling off to this extreme, the Bible was here. And we were missing out on what God had said in His Word because we were so eager to not be like them. I believe in our effort to not be like them who are overly using this in ways that is not accurate. We have pulled back to the point where we act like our words are not significant at all. Where we act like we we don't have any sort of, I don't know the word power to bless is the right word, but that it doesn't do anything. It is just a meaningless ritual. But when we look at God's word, we see it's not. These blessings are common in Old and New Testament times. Perhaps, rather than pulling back against it to the point we we get away and say that's not real, perhaps what we ought to do is see what the Word says and stand where the Word stands and do what the Word says. Now, it, it gets even more interesting. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding the things to come. When blessing Jacob and Esau regarding the things to come, Isaac was saying he knew what God was going to do based upon the promise God had given to Abraham, which was passed on to Isaac and then passed on to Jacob. Right? He was speaking to Jacob or to, sorry, Isaac was speaking to Jacob and Esau things Basically, God had said would come to pass. He knew what God had said. He knew what God was like. And so he spoke about the things God would do in both of their lives. So a question is, do we believe God is able? Do we believe God is able as he did? What if what if our knowledge of what God is like? It mixed with our knowledge of what God has said in His Word. And this motivated us to speak words of faith about what God will do in the lives of others. Because we believe God is able. 
Now, so let me give you an example because that may be deep. The God of peace will, shoot, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is connected to one of the blessings. Now, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Is this referring to the ultimate defeat in Revelation? Or is it referring to God in some sort of immediate way crushing Satan under the feet of disciples in Rome? Isn't it likely both? I mean, obviously, God is going to crush Satan ultimately. But he says soon. Doesn't that at least imply some sort of an immediate fulfillment of this? And when we look at all of God's word, isn't that, isn't that something that's kind of told us? Like Luke 10, that we will trample over serpents and scorpions? I mean, isn't that a thing? Isn't that really in the Bible? That, that God would crush Satan under not just that, but us. He will defeat him for us. Isn't that in the Bible? Isn't that something that, that God does? So Paul took his knowledge about what God is like. And he mixed it with his knowledge about what God had said. And it motivated him to speak words of faith about God would do. Because he believed God was able. Or, here's another one. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now Paul talks about problems he's having. They're pressing problems. Afflicted in every way. It it pictures problems coming at him from all sides. He had confusing problems. Problems. He was perplexed. He, he didn't know what to do. He had people problems. He was persecuted. He had catastrophic problems. He was struck down and, and probably to be taken quite literally. And while Paul had all of these problems, he also had a but not for everyone. Yes, he had pressing problems, but not crushed. Yes, he had perplexing problems, but not despairing. Yes, he had people problems, but he was not abandoned. And he was struck down. He had these catastrophic problems, but but not destroyed. Now, that that is, I've talked about that in the form of a, a divine, but not. What if someone comes to you and they're having something, problems like this? And they tell you what they are. And they're disciples of Jesus. They're sold out. Committed to Him. And they tell you about this. What, what if we say to them, there is a divine but not in your life. Yes, you feel pressed, but you're not going to be crushed because God won't allow it. Yes, you have people problems, but you're not abandoned because God won't allow it. Yes, you're confused and you don't know what to do, but you're not despairing because God won't allow it. And yes, you have a catastrophic problem, but you'll not be destroyed because God won't allow it. Would saying something like that be crossing over into the crazies? Or would saying something like that let your knowledge of God, who He is and what He is like, mix with our knowledge of what God has said in His Word and motivate us to say what God will do 
in their lives at some point in the future because we believe God is able. We can even let our knowledge about what God is like mix with our knowledge of what God has said and let this motivate us to speak words of faith about God will do in us and through us and for us because we believe God is able. The psalmist says, why are you in despair, my soul? Why are you restless within me? Wait for God. Notice, for I will again praise Him for the help of His presence, my God. The psalmist is writing from a place of despair. He takes what he knows about what God is like. He mixes it with what God has said. And it motivates him to speak words of faith about what God will do in him and through him and for him. He believes God is able. He will, at some point in the future, praise God for the help of his presence. Now, that's just for him. He's saying that for himself. This was a part of my daily Bible reading just a few months ago. And I wrote this in my journal. Never underestimate the power of a faith-filled declaration of hope to encourage you when you're discouraged. In, In what ways could we take what we know about what God is like, mix it with what we know God has said in His Word, and and let this motivate us to speak words of faith about what God will do in us, through us, or for us, because we believe God is able. I shall yet praise God, fulfilling me with all joy and peace and believing, so I abound with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I shall yet praise God for delivering me from this besetting sin. I shall yet praise God for empowering me to be a soul winner. I shall yet praise God for turning my prodigal into a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. I shall yet praise God for for what? God is able. And if we believe this, we will speak words of faith. And then finally, God is able. So we stay faithful to the end. Verse 22 is about Joseph. We first meet Joseph in Genesis 30. He's the 11th son of Jacob, the first son of Rachel, the wife Jacob loved. We don't know it at the point where we first were introduced, but Joseph will become a central figure starting in Genesis 37. Kind of the the storyline is familiar. We're introduced to him as he tells on his brothers for something, and of course they don't like it. We find out Joseph is Jacob's favorite and he's given a a coat of many colors. His brothers hate him because he told upon them and because he is the father's favorite. Joseph has two dreams. He shares them with his family. Not well received is an understatement. His brothers are jealous of him. They cannot speak peaceably of him. They go off to tend the sheep. And Jacob sends Joseph to check upon them. They see Joseph coming in a distance. And they determine they'll kill him. And see what happens with his dreams then. One of them says, let's don't kill him. That would just make us feel bad. And so he comes up there. They take off his coat. They push him into a pit. And they sit down and eat lunch. While they're eating lunch, some slave traders go by. And they say, hey, if we kill him, we'll just feel bad. 
Let's just sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery. They take his coat of many colors. They kill an animal, dip it in the, the blood. Take his coat, dip the coat in the blood. Take it to the dad and be like, hey, we found this. Do you know whose this is? Dad goes into a deep, deep depression because his favorite son is dead. Joseph is sent to slavery in Egypt and he is faithful all along the way. He suffers. His faithfulness is not rewarded by the people necessarily. Sold to a man named Potiphar whose wife takes an attraction to him. She falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. He's thrown into prison. And there he's faithful. Well, he's faithful in prison. He interprets a dream. And when he gets the guy that he interpreted the dream for gets out, he's supposed to tell Pharaoh, but he forgets. Time goes on. Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't understand. The guy that Joseph interpreted the dream for is like, oh, I remember now. Joseph is brought out. He interprets the dream, gives Pharaoh a plan, is promoted to second uh, highest ranking person in all of Egypt. He's instituted, puts in a food plan, and people have to come to him to buy food. The, the famine in the land reaches out to where Jacob and his sons are, and they're sent to buy food from Joseph. They don't recognize Joseph for it's been years, but he recognizes them. He could have killed them, but he didn't. He did kind of mess with them, but he didn't kill them. He is just with them, and things go on. The story goes on. I don't have time to get into all the details. Time's running out. You're probably familiar with it. But over time, Joseph, rather than getting vengeance, he tells his brothers who he is. He tells them not to be mad at themselves for sending him there, for it was God who did it and not them. The famine is going to extend into further. And he sends for the whole family who comes into Egypt where they are provided for by Joseph and Pharaoh. Joseph continues to serve faithfully all of his life. He is 110 years old when he dies. Chapter 43, or I'm sorry, chapter 37, where we first really begin to meet him, he is 17. So for around 93 years, Joseph faithfully serves the Lord despite all the troubles he endures. At the end of his life, he blesses his family and he makes mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, gives orders concerning his bones. He, it, God is able. This is why he's been faithful. God is able to deliver them out of Egypt. Sure, Pharaoh's strong, but God is able. And when God visits His people, delivers us out of this land, take me with you, He says. He believed God was able, so He was faithful all those years. I, I like the story of Joseph as an example of faithfulness to the end because his life wasn't easy, and ours won't be either. Difficulties are a part of life. This will be even more true the closer we get to the end of time. And, and, and I, we're in Revelation, so I think a lot about the end. But this is where faith in the power of God, God being able, is going to help us endure. I want you to look at something. Turn to Revelation 22. It should be page 962, or it's just before the last blank white page in the book. Revelation 22, verse 10. This is the final message about the final days. We'll be here in a few weeks, so I won't spoil it all, but I just want to point out a few things. 
John's told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up. Proclaim what you know. It's coming soon. Verse 11. Look at this. This is interesting. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy keep himself holy. Here's how I understand this. John has come to the end and he has described all God is going to do to bring about the end of the world and usher in the new Jerusalem. What John is kind of saying is, if you can read all that God is going to do and all that's going to come and all that's going to happen and you still want to choose sin over Jesus, you still want to be do the wrong and, and be filthy rather than turn to Jesus, go ahead. I mean, if this doesn't convince you, nothing is going to. It's kind of what he's saying. But, but he also says, for those who believe God is able to do all of the things mentioned here, and you want to choose Jesus, stay faithful. Stay holy. Stay righteous. Stay true. Stay with Jesus. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. Everybody doesn't get the same thing. They get what their life deserves. Those who choose to be filthy, they get a reward. Those who choose to be righteous, they get a reward. John's point to connect to what we're talking about in Hebrews is if you believe God is able, be faithful to the end. Don't give up, don't let up, and don't shut up. So do we believe God is able? Not do we believe it in a way that I, I believe it here and I say it here, but I live something different there. Do I believe it in those ways? Do I believe it enough to make whatever sacrifice I need to make? Do I believe it enough to, to speak words of faith? Do I believe it enough... To remain faithful in the difficult days to come. Because even if we are not a part of the revelation age of the end, difficult days come. I mean, they just do. And only believing God is able pulls us through in faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and worthy. And you are able. Work in our lives and help us to live lives that demonstrate we believe you are able. Father, I don't know what sacrifices you might be calling each one in here today to make. But whatever it is, make us fully convinced you're able to with joy make that sacrifice knowing you're able to give us far better than anything we have ever imagined. Father, make us to know you're able and let us speak Words of faith. If nothing else, let us know you're able so we don't speak words of discouragement, words of doubts, words of despair. But let us grow even beyond that to the point where we do say, we speak blessings because we know as we invoke your name, you are able. We speak words of encouragement to people because we know what you're like. We know what your word has said and, and those things mix together so that we speak words of faith 
to people, to ourselves if need be. Make us to know you're able so that when whatever difficulties come into our lives, we'll not back up, we'll not let up, we'll not shut up, but we will we will be faithful to the end. Granted, we ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen.